0: The biggest mistake I made on this whole thing was right in the beginning, is that I got the hero complex and also the Midas syndrome on this. And I was not doing it based upon logical reasoning in terms of sticking to my guns and all the principles that had made me successful.
1: It's not the mistake that matters, it's how you deal with it, what you learn from it, and how you apply that lesson to your life. Welcome to Multifamily Missteps, where your host Jerome Myers brings on apartment investors from around the country, big and small, to share with you the lessons they wish somebody would have told them. These short episodes are designed to expedite your journey to growing a profitable apartment portfolio without all the mistakes that others have made. We're super excited that you're here. Now, let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and Hive went north, and I know it's got to be cold up there. Went found my man Matt in Rochester, New York. How are you, brother?
0: Good, Jerome. It's been way too long, man, so thanks for having me on your show.
1: Man, I remember when I was supposed to fly up there. We were supposed to do the thing in person, and then this little bug COVID thing happened, and we had to go virtual, and then uh, Still worked out good, but it would have been good to shake hands with you and see what's going on in your town, man.
0: We're putting out a conference next year, so we're going to fill an arena together, man.
1: Hey, it's been a while since I've spoke multifamily, so I'd be really excited to come do that with you guys for sure. You know, the listeners, they may not be following you on social. They may not know the journey. So give them a little rundown on your background, man.
0: Yeah, I've been in real estate for 16 years and... I got into real estate back in 2006 really by accident as a residential agent. And by accident, I mean, I got the best job I could find out of college was as a bank teller. All right. And it was a bank teller in my old hometown. And I hated that job for a couple different things. I was standing in one place all day. And secondly, because my family was a blue collar family that was house poor in a affluent neighborhood or community, I had this like inferiority complex. And here I was, graduated college, best job I could find was as a bank teller. And then I am like, you know, servicing my colleagues, my school colleagues that were like graduated with fancy degrees from Yale and Northwestern and all that stuff. And I was like, I was embarrassed, right? So my dad offered me a job as a well, not a job, because I didn't really it was a hundred percent commission, but as a real estate agent. And that's how I got my start. And I got bit by the bug when I bought my first four family property. My dad pushed me out of the nest a couple months after I moved in with him because it's not every parent's dream to have an adult child living with them. So I didn't like the idea of paying rent because, you know, staying at my parents' house not paying rent was kind of cool. And so I I dreaded the idea of paying rent. So I bought a four family with The commission checks I'd saved up, it was like 16,000 bucks. It was every single penny that I had. And I moved into one of the units, rented out the other three. And that's when like I had 1,800 bucks in rent checks in my mailbox two weeks after closing. And I was like, dude, I was selling very cheap properties. And I knew how hard I had to work for $1,800. And this is like, it felt like a crime, right? So I decided I had to scale it. So that's kind of like my real estate origin story.
1: Wow. So $1,800, you didn't really do anything, but market the units for rent. And then money kept coming every month. Kind of a game i right?
0: Yeah. And I was getting all my expenses paid for, right? I was getting my mortgage taxes, insurance, and I was making 200 bucks a month while living there. So that was really cool. And if you would have told me that was possible, like six months prior to that, I would have not believed it. So I had to go through the process myself. Wow. All
1: right. So you're hooked then. And every deal that you've done since then has worked exactly the same way, right?
0: (laughs) No, I'm a hard-headed individual. And this show is called Multifamily Missteps, right?
1: It is, but I know so many operators out there do everything perfect.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I've done a lot of things wrong. One thing is that I was in real estate for 13 years. After my dad passed away when I was 28 years old, he was my mentor, right? After he passed away, I lost my mentor. And I thought that everybody's dad was their mentor. And I didn't believe in getting a mentor. So I did the DIY route and had to learn everything the hard way. So I've made every single mistake in the textbook and with all the different nuances and contexts. And so I love sharing these stories because You know, they're the things that people need to hear because, you know, we're connected to each other. You know, I I don't always share the highlight reels.
1: The highlight reels are good for social media, but that's about all they're good for. (laughs) (laughs) So give me some goods, man. Give me some of the skeletons, man. Talk to me. Let me know that you really do this business.
0: Okay. So the first time I went big was, you know, I spent my... first 13 years in buying real estate, multifamily, small multifamily with the one goal in mind of being financially free by the time I was 40 years old. And my why was pretty big. I lost both my parents in my 20s. I saw two hardworking parents that loved my brother and I to death and they died young and didn't have time to enjoy the life. They were working all the time. My dad was always too you know, squirrel enough money away for retirement because he kind of messed around when he was younger. My mother was a dialysis nurse, right? And she was battling, you know, terminal cancer, you know, working full-time as a dialysis nurse while going through chemotherapy, right? She, like, I wish I could go back in time from where I am right now to help her because I couldn't imagine, like, you know, some people, like, they get a sniffle and have a hard time going into work, right? Imagine going through chemotherapy and radiation and having to go To work to put food on your family's table. So that being said, I was able to scale, replace my income and become financially free by the time I was 33. And by, you know, just brute force, banging my head against the wall, buying properties here and there to get up to that number. And I realized I woke up in the morning, I went to the gym, went home, ate breakfast, showered, all that stuff. And I realized I was alone in the house. My wife was at work. My friends were at work. My family was at work. So I was like, now I got to retire my wife, right? Because I want to spend time with the person that I love. I don't want to be alone or like, what am I going to do? Go, am I going to day drink. Am I going to go to, uh, you know, the local bingo hall or play bridge with a bunch of little old ladies, like in a, you know, in a, it's just a living facility. So I was like ghastly, like, I was like, I have to spend another 13 years of doing this. So anyways, I got brought a deal that was a commercial property. It was a commercial office building. It was a million bucks, which was really intimidating to me. And the deal came to me by by accident because it was a broker that knew I was buying properties in this area. It was intimidating to say the least. This is not the one I want to spend time on, by the way. But I bought this deal, brought a full circle, pushed the value on it, refinanced it, got my investors' investment capital back to them. And that building bought my wife's retirement. So this... And it was like, I'd have to say there was some challenges with it, but it was an easy win. So at this point in time, I'm thinking that I have, I get what I tell my students is the Midas syndrome. Okay. And the Midas syndrome is you get a few successes, you get a few wins, and then you think that everything you touch is going to turn to gold.
1: A lot of people want to be profitable multifamily operators, but lack the knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital to be successful. They often try to overcome these challenges out of order, slowing or eliminating their ability to get the next deal done. We have developed a framework that allows them to gain the knowledge they need to find profitable deals. When they use our system, they create time and location freedom, as well as the generational wealth they desire for their family. The Multifamily Kickstart program has proven to be the fastest way to establish credibility and build a profitable apartment portfolio. Hop over to JeromeMeyers.co to find out more. Absolutely. Not the case.
0: So, the next deal was this was my baby daughter's and future kids' college education property, right? So, I found a, a 20, 24 unit mixed use property and it had 24 residential units and two commercial storefronts. And this building was like when I walked through, there was some lady that was passed out in the hallway with a needle sticking out of her arm this property was two blocks away from my house. So I had this emotional thing to it. I was like, this thing is two blocks away from my house. It's not in a great neighborhood. My my neighborhood's like, you know, it's in a great neighborhood, but the one right next to over to it is like not so great with a little sketchiness factor to it. So I thought I was going to come in and be the hero and change this corner through doing this project. So that's the kind of the start of, of that deal. And yeah, I'll stop right there.
1: So it sounds like you're going down the path of telling me that you can't change the neighborhood unless you buy the whole thing and shut it all down. But if you've got adjacent landlords who aren't on the same page as you, it could be an uphill battle, bro.
0: Absolutely. So this deal was, it was $775,000. It was the mixed-use building on the corner of two main streets. And then there was a four-family property and a different tax par- parcel was right behind it. I, you know, using my Midas syndrome here, I was like the king of creative finance. So what I did, I was like, aha, this mixed-use building here, the larger deal, I know I could get it up to appraise for seven seventy-five or more. So what we did is we made the contract that was we're buying this building for seven seventy-five, and a contingency of the contract is that the four-family behind it is we're going to get it for a dollar, contingent upon the sale and transfer title of the big building, right? And so I was like, all right, well I know I can get one hundred eighty thousand dollars to purchase the four-family that's right next to it. And then I'm gonna use that, I'm gonna use that for family as my down payment on the big property. So, and that was great. Everything leading up to that point was was just like awesome. And I thought I was a genius and all this stuff, and I was gonna save the corner and save the neighborhood and all that. (laughs) So
1: did you do the deal?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I did, I did the deal. I did the deal. We closed. I walked through the units and I was like, how am I going to rehab this thing? I had drug dealers. I had people that were i actually had a i had a a convicted you know you know pedophile that was living in in one of the units, and just a lot of other people that were kind of like down in their luck right so I was like, all right, I have to get these people out and then I have to go through and renovate all of these units and I didn't know how it was going to renovate those units. I did raise two hundred fifty thousand dollars in a promissory note from some of my investors to to renovate the units, but I didn't know how I was going to get it done. I like brought contractors through. The project was too big. They didn't get the warm and fuzzies walking through the building and that sort of thing. So um, it put me in a moment of weakness. I called somebody that I have like an arm's length relationships with, but I always kept the arm's length. It's one of those things you get two people that are like water and oil. You know, you ever met somebody that for whatever reason, like you just feel gross when you're around them?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So they had a construction company. And I brought them in because I was in my like moment of weakness in terms of like just mental stress of like how I'm going to pull this thing off. Right. And, uh, and he was like my salvation, my Lord and Savior. Right. So like, you got 250,000. This is going to be more like a, of a you know, 300,000 and change. So what I'll do is this. You give me 19% equity in the deal. I will, fund, you pay me um, all my receipts up to 250,000 because that's the capital you have. Right. And then I will sweat the rest of it until the project is done, and then when you refinance it, then you pay me back at that point in time. Okay, which it on and paper, I get to
1: keep nineteen percent of the,
0: yeah, yeah. Which it sounds. I mean, I was okay with that. I was perfectly okay with that because I thought it was going to be like, all right, this renovation thing. I hate renovate. I hate renovations. It's just not my. It's just not my thing. Um, and it was a on paper. I was more than happy to do that deal. The thing was is that. I knew that he just wasn't the right fit for it. And we weren't the right fit for each other. And so, uh, you know, of course, the project went way over budget. He burned through that $250,000 like it was nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when it came to the point of him having to put his own money into it, the project stopped. Of course. I didn't have like a vesting schedule into that membership interest. Right. So it wasn't like, okay, you can get that 19% once the project is finished. Right. No, we just modified the operating agreement and brought him on there because you know it was foolish of me to not do that. But I was inexperienced. I didn't have a somebody looking over my shoulder. I didn't have a mentor to talk to. And so I did that. And so then I started calling him. I was like, dude, what's going on with this project? We had some tenants living in some of these units and it was a disaster. There was tools left out all over the place. And so it was like, oh, I got tied up with some other projects and You know, by the way, I thought that you were going to be pre-leasing some of these units. So I didn't know that, you know, I'm like, dude, I can't pre-lease a construction zone. So I was like, you got to come back. We need to bring this thing full circle. So it was this constant fighting and tugging and that sort of thing. Long story short, we got the project. We got the project completed, like probably about 98% complete. Of course, the 2% is always the hardest when you're dealing with a contractor. And so went for my refinance. This guy was bugging me every week. Hey, did the refinance close? I was like, listen, fool, we just got our application in, okay? And so this is what it was like. I felt like I was getting harassed because he wanted his money, right? And so what happened is we ended up getting it refinanced, right? So now it comes to his, I need my money. Plus we came to the head in terms of like, all right, this isn't working out, right? Let's just do this sort of thing. So he's like, buy me out. And so by the grace of God, right? We brought this thing full circle, got the valuation. We pushed the valuation from seven seventy five to one point five million. Nice. Okay, so we got the valuation there, and like by the grace of God, we got the money out to buy him out at closing, minus about forty thousand bucks was what was left over. The people that lent me the two hundred fifty thousand dollars, you know, there, as a promissory note, I was like, listen, I can get you most of your money, but we got to leave about forty grand into the deal until I figure something out. So. I was able to take some cash from that, pay that down pretty quickly. And then this isn't the end of the story, right? So these units were beautiful. Okay. We had new kitchens, new bathrooms, that sort of thing. And we put them out for lease, right? And it was hard as hell to lease this thing up. And because it the property, I, I found that with these distressed deals, it takes like a maybe a year or two for the stank to get off of them. Right. Everybody is like, those units are beautiful, but. That building is like got a bad juju kind of thing to it. I remember
1: when, it, I remember when is what you mm-hmm. get.
0: Yeah. So then, at first round of lease up, we, of course, we had to keep adjusting our credit score down and down and the income, you know, the income requirements down and down. So, Same we thing again. <laughs> yeah. So we got at least the lease up. Thankfully, fast forward three years from now, we had to push people out. We had tenants that went in there that were dealing drugs out of there because it was on the corner, right? It was super convenient for them to have people pull up and they do their things right out of the window. But yeah, no, it was full circle three years, you know, three years later. I'd say it's an okay to good project. I wouldn't do it again. The biggest mistake I made on this whole thing was right in the beginning is that I got the hero complex and also the Midas syndrome. On this, and I was not doing it based upon logical reasoning in terms of sticking to my guns and all the principles that had made me successful, right? And uh, I couldn't change the dynamic of that neighborhood. So that's it. Did I give enough detail on the horror stories for of that?
1: For <laughs> sure, I felt like I was there walking through the halls. I've I've done some deals like that, man. So yeah, but for the person who. It's like, man, we're going to get this thing and we're going to push rent. The only way you can get those big value gains is if you buy the stuff that's really challenging, right? Mm -hmm. That's the only way you can grow the NOI and then the valuation. And so people got to know what they're getting into and they got to know that the cash flow isn't Mm -hmm. going to be what it's supposed to be in the first year. And they got to know the second year is probably not going to be as great as you thought it was. And you got to know, you're probably going to renovate stuff again because the people you put in the first year aren't really the people that are going to take care of it. And So when you start stacking that stuff up, it it shows you you really cut your teeth, man. I feel good, man. I'm almost getting some goosebumps over here because I know you've really been in the trenches. And that's what this show is about, man. Operators coming on and talking about the things that they learned in the war story so that other people don't go down that same path and be surprised if you could have heard yourself today before you bought that deal four years ago you would have not done it or you would have been prepared for what happened and you would probably would have rethought that partnership and found another way through so man this Mm -hmm. was awesome man thanks for jumping on with us and sharing the story yeah absolutely always uh, always happy to yeah man and to the listeners the pack is with you we'll talk soon you made it all the way to the end so that means you love this episode of multifamily missteps I need a favor from you. The only way this show grows is if more people know about it. So do me a favor. Take a screenshot and post it on your favorite social media platform and tag me in it. Who knows? We may have you as the next guest. I look forward to sharing the episode with you next week.